0: So really, when we founded Algix, our mission was to transform the algae biomass from a nuisance material into a renewable feedstock that we can convert into a a wide variety of, of different products. And so our company is focused on the thermoplastic conversion to turn the algae biomass into compounds that can be used with various polymers. We sell these to the factories Uh, to make products consumer products in the footwear and sports space and by us essentially you know working with government agencies and private companies to produce this algae off of waste off of wastewater off of power plants textile mills we have a network of of our supply chain we're able to take that material and uh and valorize it so by brands buying and purchasing and adopting the blue material It allows us to go and create value for that algae and incentivize the capture of CO2, the capture of water pollution, and turning that pollution into a value through our process into consumer products.
1: Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people. I am Gilles Toussaint, your host and the founder of GT Impact, a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Growing a company that aims at having a sustainable impact is not easy. That's why I created Mission First. In each episode, I interview one entrepreneur who has a sustainable mission and who has recently gone through the difficult first years successfully. Together we discuss their challenges and what they have learned on the way. We go into detail with a specific focus on company culture, leadership, financing, growth and business strategy. That way you'll learn hands-on tips on how to build a better future and a successful company too. Today my guest is Ryan Hunt, co-founder of Algix & Bloom. With his companies, he sells durable resins to brands like Adidas, Reebok, Bilabong, who make shoes with that green product. The eco-innovative product use algae that transform air and water pollution to a replacement for plastic consumer products. So far with their products, they've cleaned more than 600 million litres of water. Started in 2010 as a spin-off from the University of Georgia, The company has now more than 100 customers and employs more than 20 people. During these 10 years, Ryan went through a few difficult phases where they had to adapt their company products and manufacturing strategy. We are going to talk about these challenges, and Ryan also prepared a list of do's and don'ts on the topic of how to sell a B2B green product to a brand like Adidas, in particular how to integrate into a supply chain in Asia. But if you want to learn about B2B eco-innovative product development pivoting supply chain strategy, this episode is for you. Brian, thank you very much for being here today. How are you? Thank you.
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be part of the podcast.
1: I'm really excited about that episode too. So you are the founder of Algix & Bloom. Um, what's the mission of, of your company or companies?
0: Well, so just to be clear, Algix is our company. Mm -hmm. Our brand is Bloom. So we we have a, a series of products that are called Bloom Resins. But really, our journey started almost 14 years ago when I was in graduate school. And I discovered that algae produce over half of the oxygen. So half of our photosynthetic capacity of the planet is actually being conducted by microscopic organisms living in water all over the world and that the uh, carbon that was being sequestered and the uh, biomass being produced, it is significantly more than all the forests on the planet combined. So, you know, when algae is the primary producer of the planet, how is it that humans have yet to really tap into this primarily uh, totally underutilized natural resource that is the foundation of the, the food web for the planet? So ironically, the uh, fossil deposits, the oils that we extract, are actually ancient marine algae blooms that have undergone pressure and heat for millions of years. And so, you know, we're actually leveraging our current industrial booms on ancient algae biomass resources. And, you know, yet at the same time, we're actually today suffering major algae problems in terms of harmful algae blooms and drinking water issues and environmental and ecosystem health-related problems with algae and pollution. And we have this major issue, how, how can we turn that problem into a beneficial solution that provides us a way to displace our use of non-renewable resources like petroleum and and coal, et cetera. So really when we founded Algix, our mission was to transform the algae biomass from a nuisance material into a renewable feedstock that we can convert into a a wide variety of, of different products. And so our company is focused on the thermoplastic conversion to turn the algae biomass into compounds that can be used with various polymers. Uh, some of those can be biodegradable. Some of them can be engineered and durable. But we essentially produce these, these algae bloom pellets that are about half algae by weight. We sell these to the factories uh, to make products, consumer products, in the footwear and sports space. And by us essentially you know, working with government agencies, and private companies to produce this algae off of waste, off of wastewater, off of power plants, textile mills. We have a network of, of our supply chain. We're able to take that material and uh, and valorize it. So we by, by, by brands buying and purchasing and adopting the blue material, it allows us to go and create value for that algae and incentivize the capture of CO2, the capture of water pollution and turning that pollution into a value through this uh, th- through our process into consumer products.
1: Can you explain us a bit how these like uh, products kind of help to clean water and hair? Like what, what what is the process behind that, and how do you work with these uh, factories to, to clean up the the water?
0: So algae is the most uh, photosynthetically efficient organism on Earth. And, in fact, if you search algae blooms, what you'll find is that uh, algae's exponential growth rate occurs when there's excess nutrients. It, it's an abundant resource that's all over the place. Just no one's harvesting it. So our initial phase of the company was, okay, there's algae. We, we proved to the laboratory that we can convert the algae into a thermoplastic material. And that allows us to displace or replace the amount of petroleum-based plastics or even plant-based plastics in the finished product. Uh, so that once we figured out the process, it was really building the supply chain. Most of our company has been, the you know, the actual effort has been building a supply chain to get enough algae from enough places that provide enough benefit that we can actually produce our product at the scale and and cost structure that's needed to get commercial adoption.
1: And what's an example of factory, uh, like, and how they, they use the, the algae in that case to, to produce the, the, the biomass that you need?
0: So, we have two fundamental classes of, of vendors or suppliers that work with us we have governments and we have private companies. The, on the government side, we work with municipalities and, uh, and agencies to either A, use the algae in an engineered system that actually cleans. and polishes wastewater from a town. So our current cities have wastewater treatment plants. They release a large quantity of ammonia, phosphorus, and CO2. So, you know, we've been installing, and and companies have been doing this, and there's interest in doing this more, uh, have large treatment lagoons or raceway ponds that can grow algae and absorb those inorganic nutrients that are typically being uh, discharged at low levels, uh, but we're able to capture those and reassimulate it into into biomass into the to a feedstock that goes into the top of the food chain. So we can turn that biomass into crude oil, we can turn it into hydrogen, we can turn it into a wide range of different chemicals and products, but it all starts with the nutrients. So the, we, we, the, the whole mission of the company is to change the perspective of industry to see, our lowest value emissions, the carbon dioxide, the ammonia, the phosphorus as one of our most valuable assets in the sense that we can actually use that material and in, in, in whether it's a company producing enough of it that it makes sense for them to install an algae system or that our governments, you know, our municipalities start using the, our, the people's wastewater, the city's wastewater, the industrial wastewater, the agricultural wastewater, which is such a huge problem using that as a as a nutrient source, to produce algae in the most photosynthetic way. So some of these are municipalities that are growing the algae on purpose to prevent the discharge of the pollution. We also have companies uh, that are developing you know, greenhouse-based systems that are bolting on and doing it even more efficiently. Uh, but then on the other side of the picture, we have uh, really the, the uh, reactive approach where we are looking at environmental restoration, so, ironically, the when we first started our company, one of the first things we built was a fleet of mobile algae harvesters because we didn't know where the algae was going to come from. We needed to be nimble, and we needed to build to deploy algae harvesting platforms to get it when the get when the getting's good. And so, the idea was that we were going to work with catfish farmers in aquaculture industry to harvest the algae as a co-product of their uh, fish production operations. Uh, but turns out that later on, we've had uh, big uh, engineering and government contractors come to us to rent that equipment and use it for harmful algae bloom mitigation. So they like the fact that it was mobile, it was deployable, and it was designed for harvesting algae. Uh, we're, we were one of the few people that offered this. And so we currently have programs with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and AECOM where the uh, mobile unit is really the first step of collecting the algae from a lake that is, has an abundance of it due to environmental issues. Uh, Our biggest supply of that is probably the largest eco-restoration project in the world. It's on Wuxi in Lake Tai in China. And that lake has uh, about 70 million people that live on it. And there's just an enormous, almost year-round algae bloom across the entire lake. And so their solution in China has been the same technology we use, uh, algae harvesting using micro-air bubbles. We float the algae out. We oxygenate the water. We return that clean, filtered, oxygenated water back to the ecosystem, and the algae is separated, concentrated, and dried. And then we purchase that at a premium to incentivize them to do it more, or to help incentivize. I mean, they're definitely being sponsored by the government. You know, just what we're buying isn't you know funding the entire operation, uh, but it helps build a business model where the government and private industry starts to you know starts to get the ball rolling. It's like, okay, this pollution, this algae, somebody wants to buy this. Like, this is a product. And so the more value that we can get for the bloom algae and these niche applications with footwear brands and sports brands and niche and and, uh, and outdoor brands, we're really trying to build value in the story to help us promote uh, the, 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 the massive undertaking of installing this infrastructure around the world and really helping transform our linear economy, at least in, in the dimension of algae, into a circular system.
1: OK, so that's you. You're basically with that technology, it's possible to. Let's take, for example, my, my. I used to work for a, for a worldwide leader in the phosphate industry, like a, like a company. They could basically take the the the, the water, the waste water uh, that have way too much like phosphates or like uh, ammonia, and just use this technology to uh, basically like manufacture algae's. And you could basically like uh, take these algae's to start using them for to make your, like, the products, the pellets you make, in order to process them, to make foam that can be used in shoes. Exactly.
0: Exactly, okay. yeah. So we're, we're always looking for partnerships where, I mean, the, the best case scenario is you're taking the waste stream from a company that's using plastics. And in today's age, you know, almost every company uses plastics somewhere in their supply chain if you're making stuff. So it, there's not really a shortage of customers. I would say the big challenge that we face is that the algae is not perfect. Uh, we, you know, it's not like you can take a hundred percent green goo and magically convert it into like the highest performing material possible. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. Uh, you you can turn the out al- the raw algae into a plastic. Uh, that was the first discovery that we made in, in two thousand and nine. But the performance of that plastic is not particularly good, and it's certainly not useful for foams or for a la you know, rubbery. Plastic-like pro- pro- products that you think of. So our first step was getting it diluted into a form that anybody can use. So once we make those bloom pellets, now it's I mean any injection molder on the planet. Any fact we have fat we have over two hundred factories already in, in our system that are working with various different brands. The brands specify the product. The factories order it from us. We help the factories use it and formulate with it. Is you know it's pretty much the same as EVA, but or, or whatever the base resin is. But there are a few tweaks. And we help uh, support that project, and then it's it's up to them. And we and then we go back to the, the algae producers and say, "Hey, good news! You know, Adidas is buying insoles. Hey, this thing's this might actually work." <laughs> you know?
1: Okay, so this this is a, like the R and D challenge for every of of your new customers, basically.
0: Yeah, so I think the, in the early days with the foams, we started focusing on foams specifically uh, because of various performance. Advantages, uh, and just, it, just technical advantages, material advantages that we were able to achieve the proper material properties.
1: Uh, yes, because there are different reform- types of yeah. like form and, and of plastic that you could like manufacture, There's, but you decided to focus on foams.
0: When we started looking at foams, it was because the customers that you know use foams are big fashion, athletic, corporate companies that have. Uh, environmental, social uh, governance, uh, you know, initiatives and sustainability initiatives where they're looking for ways for adoption to adopt new technologies, new materials into their supply chain. Because when you look at the, the life cycle assessments of consumer products, you know, 50 to 80% of the impact of a product is the, the the manufacturing, the raw materials. So by, you know, by, by, uh, by adapting and adopting more sustainable products into their supply chains, they're able to take a big chunk out of their greenhouse gas emissions and their other, you know, the water impacts and other environmental issues. So uh, we, we try to align our product with the metrics that the companies are using to measure their progress in terms of uh, ESG and sustainability.
1: OK, and before we go into more details about the, the different phases that you went through, let's talk a bit about the like the. A few numbers. How big is your team right now? How many full-time employees?
0: We've got twenty people right now
1: around the okay. world. Okay. And uh, what kind of revenue, uh, like re- customers? I know you you said you, you have more than a hundred customers. I think. Uh, and what kind of revenue are we looking at, like ballpark or like like dig- in terms of digits?
0: Yeah, we're six. We're at seven figure. We're a couple million dollars of sales right now and growing. Uh, we've been doubling for the past two years, so there's a lot of hundred. The hundred brands is nice because there's some big names, but in footwear, you know, shoes are made out of foam. They don't weigh a lot, so you know, a, a customer. You know, we've got a lot of ten thousand pairs, which is a lot of shoes. There's a lot of rev, It's a lot of value in terms of the number of shoes. I mean, a pair of shoes could be hundred fifty bucks. So, the, so, but the amount of algae they need for those shoes, it's still relatively small from us. So, you know, we're using the footwear footwear uh, as a gateway to really uh, raise awareness about our mission, our brand, our product, and technology. And what that's done is, we, you know, through the validation of Adidas, it's opened up so many doors. We're working with uh, so many new brands now, and COVID was a major delay, as you can imagine. Uh, and then last year, we've been in a serious trade war with China. So we've had some some headwinds to growth, for sure. Uh, but those seem to be opening up more, and I believe there's a lot of pent-up demand
1: Okay, and in terms of like financing, uh, how did you did you bootstrap all of that? Uh, you told me like you, you raised some money from like friends and family at the time. Uh, what's can you it's, introduce yeah, a little bit been, to like the, the different like financing stages that you you get with the company?
0: Well, it's been really interesting. I mean, we've been really fortunate. We've got an incredible group of, uh, of investors that have uh, invested. Many of them very early on in the company's history, and they've uh, stuck with us, continuing to invest. So we have a a lot of small smallish investors. I would say uh, they the early phase were were friends and family uh, that got us going for the first few years. That was you know a few million dollars, which was good. Uh, Some of these were higher net worth individuals. Um, And then we we brought on on some angel investment that really believed in our mission. And uh, we did some uh, debt financing. We also uh, secured uh, two SBA loans from the Small Business Administration from the U.S. federal government. Uh, And so those were specifically for economically depressed uh, areas, uh, investments in these areas. And and there was major uh, benefits and perks for sustainable technologies. So we were a green technology going into an economically depressed area. Uh, And so that's and and also we're integrating with the resources of the region. So the reason that we are located in Meridian, Mississippi, is that we are surrounded by about 100,000 acres of active algae farms. So it's the most abundant place for algae in the country, and, uh, and 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 it's it's growing every day, and no one's harvesting it. It's just out there, and it's and the the growth rates are high because these ponds are being uh, actively cultivated with fish, and so that was the reason we originally came. Since then, we've had other suppliers and, and a lot of these cool r- lake restoration projects come online, which. T- Tells a great story. It's a great mission. It's a great purpose of the product and, and the technology, uh, using the the valorization model to help fund and, and grow lake restoration, environmental restoration. So uh, to date, it's been over sixty million dollars over ten years, and we're we're finally at that you know that revenue uh, point. We've been our revenue's been growing, and we're at that break even point now. So uh, we're we're really excited. It's taken a long time. Um, so patience, perseverance. Uh, and uh, and being flexible are all incredibly uh, important entrepreneurial traits, I believe.
1: Ryan started this company in 2010 and initially tried to commercialize this technology of harvesting and converting algae into a biomass. So I asked him, what were some of the hardest challenges that you faced in that early phase, especially on the topic of flexibility as an entrepreneur?
0: So I would say that the... At the time, most of the companies were looking at cultivating their own algae. So we had worked with them. These were the biofuel companies. So this is, again, this is like 2010. So there was an enormous, over uh, over a billion dollars was invested in algae biofuels back then. And so the, it was a little bit very different than, than today. And so we were working with them originally, trying to get their waste product because we don't use the oil. We use the protein and the minerals They use the oil. So it was a perfect marriage with working with the biofuel companies. But since I did so much research in this area in grad school and I mean for biofuels, that was the the original goal and ultimately failed. You know, I knew that there was so many challenges to overcome in terms of relying on the biofuel industry, algae biofuel industry to to be abundant such that we would have offtake agreements in in, in biomass. So none of those companies that we were really talking to are still around. Uh, and and they never really were able to deliver us much material in terms of, of sampling. So, when we realized that we could make the product, we've been making these compounds for 10 years. I mean, it, honestly, not that much has changed since 10 years ago to today, other than uh, people know about it and, and we have the factory to do it. And, you know, we're starting to get adoption. I mean, it's been this process. So, the actual core technology, we knew it was scalable 10 years ago, pretty much out of the gate. Because we, 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 our very first, Experiment we did as a startup company was let's go to the to the factories and to a polymer uh, a polymer compounding factory and run it at some level of scale and that's and then at that point it's modular and scalable. So once we did that, we started focusing our interests on how do we get the algae, and that became the much bigger issue. So when we started looking, and honestly, like one day my my partner business partner uh, technology partner Ashton and I were looking at algae uh, uh, sources and. We started looking on Google Earth. We'd heard about some uh, fish ponds out in Alabama and Mississippi. So we started zooming in the areas, and we struck gold. We found these massive facilities that were just bright green, chock full of algae, and hundreds of thousands, you know, 100,000 acres of it between these two states. So we kind of said, well, that's like one state away. It's a four-hour drive. Let's get over there and check it out and see if we can meet these people and see if we can, you know, harvest some of this algae. And so the first step of the business was really to say, can we actually like show up at a a lake and harvest enough algae that that makes economic sense? Like what's the actual cost of producing algae? So we essentially kind of made a startup within our startup, which isn't wise. We spent a lot of money. It was probably six or $7 million just on this first phase to prove out, could we actually like do this from a production perspective and what are the costs going to be? So ironically we we didn't actually end up producing that much algae overall but we were able to produce some algae at scale and, and and scale up over multiple generations so from like 2011 to 2016 we were essentially operating our own internal supply chain and uh and it was very challenging because it took staff i mean it was it was really expensive and it obviously was probably like, a, a, to some extent, a huge waste of money because we're not actually doing that anymore. So that's like the one problem. But the, I guess the, the the silver lining is that the technology that we developed did two things for us. One, it proved to all of us that like, okay, the algae cost 50 cents per pound dry weight tops. Like you probably could produce it for about 20 cents per pound. But it's very, very dependent upon which technology you use and where you're at and what resources you have. Uh, so we evaluated multiple technologies and we kind of figured out like, all right, I think this is a good way to do it. There may be a better way. There may be many good ways, um, but we had a good way to get to a cost competitive number. And if the EVA or the TPE or whatever the plastic is, we are replacing is a dollar or $2 and we're producing it at, at 50 cents. There's, there's now there's room, there's some margin in there. And so, you know, obviously this requires massive scale though. So for us, the big challenge was major chicken and the egg scenario. Uh you know, we kind of I mean, we ultimately we, we failed the f- catfish farmers because during that six year period that we were doing the development, we, we didn't we didn't have the, the confidence or the the evidence to to, to convince an, an, an Adidas, an Adidas to say, hey, there's a supply chain here. You guys are fishing. You're fishing some, you know, filtering water. This is this isn't a supply chain that's going to service one of the biggest sportwear companies in the world. So, you know, we weren't ready for that level of of commitment yet. But yet we had to, at the same time, prove that it was possible, develop a process to do it, and then then basically convince others to do it. We had to get the supply chain set up day one, and it was basically a huge failure. We lost millions of dollars. And uh, only recently have we been starting to recap some of that because we pivoted and we took those mobile algae harvesters and started leasing them to the governments, the U.S. Army Corps and their projects with AECOM for demonstrating algae harvesting at some scale that you can, you know. People, politicians and, and, and government agents can go to and look at and say, "Oh, okay, well, this is actually working. Let's fund a project for this." Or the media, you know, I mean, so like, there's a lot of momentum that we're trying to build right now around this concept of of cleaning these these environmental problems up and converting this negative into a pro, into a positive. So, part of our marketing is really tied to the success. And the activities of our of our partners that are out there on, at the you know, at the at the lakes and at the wastewater utility plants, installing the equipment and actually operating and producing the algae, making the positive impact.
1: And when you lease uh, these equipments, so like you are basically making some like revenue as well with that.
0: A little bit. We could sell them to. Yeah. Ironically, these guy, everybody prefers to not own things because then they got to, like, maintain them and. Depreciate them. So, uh, right now we're just leasing them out. We have 10 of them. Uh, we've got f- uh, 16 more uh, shells that aren't built out, but could be built out if the demand increases. I mean, we're hoping that more people want to clean up their algae blooms and we'll have, uh, you know, we'll at least be able to support the initial phases. Maybe this, I mean, our equipment may not be the ultimate long term, big scale algae harvesting system, but it can get you started. Uh, one, one of the systems cleans 250,000 gallons of water in one day. So it's a lot of water and, uh, and, and 90, 90 plus percent removal of algae, nitrogen and phosphorus and, and, and carbon for whatever carbons dissolved in the water.
1: But the main, just to make sure I understand, the main reason you switch, like you decided to go for like this, like to focus on the second step, which is uh, producing the bioplastic from the biomass was basically an economical reason and log- like logistical reason for you as well.
0: Yeah, that's our core technology. We've we never really wanted to be in the algae production game. We wanted to always help the algae producers add value to their low-end uh, waste product. So typically the algae is being produced for oils. Those oils have high value in a variety of markets, that's great, but there's always this 70-80% leftover that represents the protein and the minerals and a little bit of the carbohydrates that typically is not being used right now. And,
1: and were so we're you, able to, yeah. sorry, were you already then working on the technology of like the, the bioplastic already from scratch in 2010,
0: 2009. Yeah. We were working on it.
1: Okay. So you had both in parallel, but you just decided to focus at some, at the beginning to see, okay, how can we reproduce basically all, all source all material.
0: Yeah, step, step one was prove out the thermoplastic technology was better than biofuels, and that seemed to work. When we, when we proved that we could make the bioplastic at, at a scale that was modular and scalable, then we said, okay, now we just got to get the algae. And that really was the hard part. Um, and then it, it comes in phases, right? Us being able to make a compound doesn't mean we can make the perfect compound for every person. <laughs> so So you, so you got to find the right person that wants to buy your compound for the right application that it works for for the right price point. And so, you know, that's a bunch, <laughs> that takes 10 years, but yes, uh, fundamentally we, 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 we did enough of the R and D in the early stages to prove that we can make stuff. It wasn't until 2015, uh, that we really, uh, you know, started focusing on foams, which I think kind of goes to your second point, which you're asking in phase two, you know, uh, we made another big, uh, a big folly, which is, uh, build it and they will come. So we built a multi-million dollars. So our second factory, so that was so the first one we talked about was the algae factory. It grows algae, it harvests algae from any al- nat- natural algae source. With It takes it in, we dewater it, we dry it, end of story. The second factory takes that powder from that location and other locations, because we were getting algae by that point, but from other places We were then scaling up the micronization and the compounding. So now we're talking about you know million dollar pieces,
1: pellets, the pellets, making the
0: pellets, pellet production. So we're running like two thousand pounds per hour. So it's a lot of it's big industrial
1: equipment. What was the like? So you decide to you start first to like you produce the first plant. Sorry, you make the first uh, plant to manufacture the the Uh, to harvest them, you decide to leave that part. You switch. You focus on the thermoplastic, uh, like bioplastic factory, and at some point you decide to switch from you know like uh, products for for flower pots to the uh, the foam for the footwear industry. What was the like? How do you switch and pivot to that that side? Yeah.
0: So when we look at it from the material form, it was the next step of the supply chain. So, you know, biomass was step one. We source the raw, raw materials. We reclaim those. We're reclaiming the algae as a waste product. We're bringing it in. We're making a thermoplastic pellet. Uh, That's that's really puts us in what's called the tier three sector or or silo within like uh, the manufacturing industry speak. Uh, Means that you're essentially three levels removed from the customer. So we're producing a raw material. Our pellets were being shipped to other other factories. These factories were mostly in Asia. And these factories specialized in in taking those pellets, melting them down, adding other ingredients like blowing agents uh, and and cross-linkers that help essentially cast and create these foams. Or or it would injection mold them into a specific shape. Uh, So really that next step is called conversion. And so you know, part of our business was really the core part of our business is the pellets. Um, but to get something out, we had to prove that you actually could make a viable commercial product with, with, with our pellets. And so we did two tracks for this. One was successful and one was less successful. Uh, the less successful one was actually the first one where we took the pellets, we bought our own extruders, single screw extruders, so filament extruders, and we actually produced 3D printer filament out of our own pellets. Wrapped them up on coils, packaged them with with cute marketing stuff, and sold them on Amazon and other in Micro Center and others and other uh, business outlets for 3D printing applications.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, because uh, like 3D printing was booming in 20. I remember it it was 2015 the, was, was was the, the was trend the was. 3D printing, yeah.
0: Everything was 3D printing. Well, it turns out, guess what? It, it was, not <laughs> <such> <laughs> yeah,
1: in terms was not. The high was not volumes, as, it's not. I mean, it, when it's mostly private, it's it's not huge, right?
0: It's not, it was small volumes, very fragmented, very specialized, but it, it, it's been good though because it did two things. It got our material into the hands of the innovators. And it's been funny, you know, this was five years ago, over the past five years, people, random people will will have, have used our film. I had a call just recently. Um, with a guy who's making these really cool autonomous drones out of our material. And I had no idea it was, we had a call out of call with them for a different reason and it popped up. So um, but the other thing that it was very good was that it taught us kind of, it gave us training wheels in terms of lean six, six manufacturing, which means essentially the Toyota model of super efficient, uh, refined manufacturing techniques that are you know kind of cutting edge. So, you know, really working through in a systematic way, uh, efficient manufacturing, and so for us, it was a complete learning curve. We did the full thing. We started with raw material. We were making the pellets. We bought the extruders. We were making the filament. We bought the packaging products. We made the packages. Uh, we shipped them to our, our our customers. We were doing sales. We were doing marketing. We were doing inventory management. We were, t- I mean, yeah, it was probably silly, but that was that was what we were doing. And so, but through that, it was we learned a lot. And so. When we started looking at that business, we had lots of SKUs. We had over uh, 100 different colors and, and specifications and sizes. I mean, we had, like, all these different products, uh, and it was a lot of, lot to manage, you know. And so when we looked at the at the foam business, it was a little bit more interesting because we could produce a, what's called a master batch. It's one pellet or maybe a couple grades of pellets, and then we were shipping it to a totally separate factory that would just add it, sprinkle us in at a certain percentage based upon the project. So we weren't having to produce a hundred different products. It was, we were you know, the, the, the spool itself is a a consumer product. You know, we had a UPC code. It was registered with Amazon, you know. So it was getting, we were selling to people, to customers. Um, so I think when we when we transitioned to the Bloom side, when Bloom started taking off as a brand, really around the foam and the use of the algae as an ingredient and footwear, that simplified our business model. But then we still had the same issue where now we had to get the factories to, to to agree to use the material and actually like succeed. And just because you want it to be done, just because even the brand wasn't to be done, doesn't mean the factory in Asia is going to just say, yeah, send me the stuff and I'll make it work. They, they're they very it was very, extremely resistant. Uh, we've had so many different problems and it required a lot. And I think it's kind of the, one of the things we'll talk about today is, like, how do you do that? Because that was the hardest part. I mean, making the technology was easy. Getting the algae actually wasn't that hard. I mean, it's, it's out there. It was just a matter of getting it, you know? So, I mean, so those are those, the hardest things were actually the easiest things. What should be easy was actually the hardest. And so, the way that we kind of broke in to the industry was we, we started our own trading company in China. We actually started our own wholly owned foreign entity in China. We hired local domestic, you know, local Chinese professionals that were in the footwear industry, so they knew they they had relationships with the factories. They knew the business. Uh, We hired chemical engineer and and office support for logistics and procurement. So you know, we we built a a core team, and we we really worked with the factories, uh, you know, kind of one by one to build that up. But we we started to we we put ourselves in the middle, so we became the company taking the order from the brand. So we had like a brand in the U S like red wings. That was one of our early adopters or Vivo barefoot was an early adopter. You know, they wanted to do it. They couldn't get their factory to agree to it and, and they wouldn't buy it from us. <laughs> so we had to go there and basically say, all right, you know, let's, we'll work, we'll, we'll work it out with you and we'll buy the parts. And so we've kind of got in the middle, basically contracting with the companies to make the foam, get it specced in. I mean, just really a lot of handholding to get those initial projects going and so we were actually selling insoles. It was there. It was the brand's insoles, but we were essentially the trading company, contra- subcontracting it with these factories and having the bloom ingredient for sure added. Because sometimes you know, you if you're not there watching it, you don't know if, if he's actually pouring it in. I mean, you kind of we can figure because it out still measures, easily, right? We can we can still measure it, but at the time, you know, we didn't have all that it, that that process in place to really know. Um, so being there in the early days was was absolutely. Critical. We spent a lot of time in, in, in China. Um, and then, of course, Vietnam has been coming online, taking a lot of the business out of China and the footwear side. So we've also been standing up and have inventory in China and in, in Vietnam as well, uh, which requires similar types of, of meetings and handholding initially. Um, so I think that once we got the tier two business model kind of running and we understood we actually had our cost breakdown. So we knew what it cost to make the foam and what the factories were charging. And we, and we did that for about a year and a half. And we said, okay, you know, this is really complicated. We're going to have to hire a lot more people. If every footwear factor, every footwear brains have to come through us, it's not going to work. It's too complicated. It's, it, we, it's not scalable. We're not going to be able to produce the economic, uh, sorry, the environmental impact that we want because we, you know, we may get the economic impact if it's possible. But it was definitely seen as a roadblock in a, in a, in a, a, a bottleneck uh, as well as just it, it was, uh, you know, I mean – It was a challenge. It was a challenge to pull it off and grow that scalable. So once we kind of got enough brands doing it, including Adidas, Red Wings, Vivo Barefoot, after a year or two, we started backing back off and saying, okay, you know, we're going to go back to just selling the pellets. We have relationships with these factories now. If you go to our factories, they'll quote you the product. They'll get you they'll get you the stuff. They'll buy it from they'll buy it from us. We'll we'll track it. We'll trace it. We'll ensure that the right quantity is in your product. Uh, but we're, but you're not going to be buying the insoles from us. You're going to be buying and specking it in, with the factories. So it put us kind of. It took some of the pressure off from a manpower and management perspective, and, and you know, all the p- liability issues and problems that may come with manufacturing of all these different factories. And it's just like, all right, we're just going to sell raw material, which there's pros and cons to. We're, we're so now we're back to the to the pellet business model, which is good. It's simpler. It's more scalable. It's more efficient. Uh, but, you know, we're not as involved with the factories as much as we were. So, you know, but overall, I think it's it's the right, it was, you know, the right move. And it was critical that we we, we set up our business to be scalable more so than maybe it's more profitable, per se, uh, to try to capture more of the supply chain value.
1: So, like, I remember you told me that, you know, it took four years to, to uh, Adidas to just, you know, take your, like, from the moment they you started to, talk about your products to the moment where they, they went public with your products. Why is that? What were, what's what, like, Oh, well, what's, what, what happens during four years?
0: Yeah. Well, they, they claim that we were one of the fastest materials ever to be onboarded and commercialized. Normally they said it could take six to seven. Um, I, you know, I don't know. That's just what they, what they told us, but um, I, you know, it's, it's several fold. So when you first, approach these companies, you're typically, I mean, these big companies, there's just so much, there's so many different teams. There's so much regulatory issues. There's so much bureaucracy, et cetera. You know, you've got to figure out how to penetrate the organization and how to get your material adopted. And when it's, when you're dealing with such a large organization that is very uh, technical and, you know, has incredible, you know, they're, they're German, they've got process down. Right. So, I mean, it is, it was systematic, but in some ways, it was actually easier than Nike. Nike basically has the same situation, but it was – we felt it was more difficult to, 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 um, to, to get to navigate through that. And, you know, we reached out to Nike in 2013. Um, you know, it didn't go anywhere. We reached back out in 15, and didn't really go anywhere. And so, like, I, you know, and maybe it's on – you know, it wasn't just – it was issues with the product and et cetera. It was a variety of reasons. But being able to – the reason it takes so long is that you have to start with convincing – you know, finding a champion in the organization – Usually getting in front of an innovation team to say this is a concept, you know, worth adopting. And when you go in and tell somebody you're going to go put algae in their shoes, they just kind of look at you funny. So, I mean, people have put other biomass into plastics before, and, and you can do that. And, and there's pros and cons of doing that. But algae is this unique animal. But because what we're doing is so unique and we have the, the level of kind of validation and in transparency around what we've built and what we do and how it works. And, you know, we've been able to, you know, sustain four years of conversations and and work to get of collaboration to get to the point where you actually get a product to market. Uh, So once you get to innovation, then you're talking to sustainability, they're going to be vetting your LCA. If you don't have an LCA, you need to like get one ASAP. Uh, Even if it's, even if it's just, you know, you, you need something. Right. And so I would recommend certainly having, is best of a uh, do as do it spend as much time and, and effort and, and, and money. It's going to cost, it costs us a lot of money to get all this third party stuff done on our process and all the certifications. I mean, it's really expensive. Uh, so it's, it's, to some extent it's not fair because we're a small little startup company is trying to do something different. And the amount of, of, uh, of due diligence that's required is not cheap. Um, so, but you know, if you can do that, improve it, that's kind of, that kind of gets you the blessing from sustainability and then it's time to go talk to the product, the product managers, and the designers and the developers. So once you kind of get spec into the system, they'll like assign your material in their database. That's a huge step. Once you get to that point, it's like, all right, we're essentially an allowed material that a, a designer can find in their day to day operations in their system, and we, you know, we're in a pull down menu somewhere. And so now we've got to go. So then like phase two of our job is to go contact the designers and the developers and try to raise awareness of what we're trying to do with Bloom and how their decision of what little material they click on has this like dramatic impact on the planet. That's been the past like two or three years is getting into the companies, getting people excited about it, uh, getting people to understand it. That's our biggest challenge. Market awareness and just typically like understanding it of what actually we do because it's not it's not easy. It's it's kind of complicated. We always battle the percentage war. Everybody's trying to, to just only look at a percentage number as like how much bio content or how much recycled content or how much algae content is yes, in because it. And you know,
1: yeah. I have a question on that, like percentage. At, at the end of the day, like when the people like throw away their shoes, how much of that? I mean, what happens to the the material? Your material. And the other materials, because like uh, like the, the production of your materials like definitely like was was positive for the environment in terms of, because you use some 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 renewable uh, like uh, materials or like a, or I don't know how you said like some you recovered some 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 lakes to to be able to to produce that material. But at the end of the day, when people throw away their shoes, is that recycled or not?
0: Great question. So yes, that is the biggest problem and challenge that we have as a raw material provider is that we're not really in charge of the end of life of the product. You know, we can make compounds that are biodegradable or the whole 3D printed business was all biodegradable, compostable materials. Uh, but those particular materials are not useful in shoes. They're just, they don't, they can't, you can't make a foam out of it. So in order to get integrated into the supply chain, we had to work with what they were already working with so we, we have an overall environmental benefit where we're sequestering and, and essentially using the shoes as a carbon and pollution sink. So it's essentially capturing all this pollution, locking it up into a product that, as of right now, is not being recycled by the industry. It's a multi-material product. It's been cross-linked in the foams. You can't just take this thing to a, a normal recycler and they're going to like, oh, throw it in the machine and out pop plastic water bottles doesn't, doesn't happen, doesn't exist. Uh, however, uh, as we've been getting more engaged in the footwear industry and we're starting to understand some of the limitations in sustainability and some of the problems that these brands are facing in terms of the end of life of their products, you know, it's, it's, Multi-material products are a big problem. So brands are looking at using all one material that could be ground up and recycled in a more conventional way. Uh, But there's some other innovative approaches as well where the shoes can be uh, reground and and separated out from fibers, from foams, from rubbers. And so there are uh, one in Europe, and there's, I think, one that's in the works of being built here in the U.S., that would be a circular footwear recycling system specifically designed for footwear. It, it has to be, and has all the mechanisms to pull metal out, to pull to, to separate everything by density, and start to recover some of these these shoe materials. Uh, so that is something that we're very interested in because we can take those raw materials that are coming back out of that factory. Not only can we incorporate those back into Uh, Our bloom compounds at the starting point again to displace the virgin materials that we use because we do use some virgin EVAs in order to achieve the performance that's needed by the customer. Um, So as we are developing new compounds, we can increase our the quality of the and and what we call the loop content, I think has been the industry term, increasing the loop content where it's not just recycled from plastic water bottles, but you're actually taking your product and putting it back into your product.
1: Yes, yeah, so it's it's, a, it's basically on the design and the manufacturing of the, the shoe itself. But there is a lot of progress to, to be made. A lot of progress we've made for sure, mm-hmm.
0: and I think the biggest step forward that we're seeing is just measuring the impact uh, when you start. That's and that's really what we're talk, like. Our, the main thing that we talk to the brands about is when do you look at sustainability. You know, we, we're we trying to help them pers- view it in a way that it's not just about the, an arbitrary percentage number. That doesn't actually tell you anything in terms of the impact of what's actually impacting the world. You need to look at the impacts. You need to look at the LCA data. And so, you know, the big brands know this. It's very stringent. And so, um, so we plug into that system and with our LCA data. It's all been peer-reviewed.
1: Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still the same thing. Uh, we need to decrease consumption of, of products in general. As soon as, like, until we have a completely circular economy, we can't keep on like uh, consuming products the way the way we do. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's 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 uh, something very very clear right now. So now that you are talking about, um, uh, actually, I wanted to talk about growth because you were talking about LCA, and I saw on your website. Uh, so, LCA lifecycle analysis for the people who don't know about it. Um, so, that's basically calculating how much, uh, basically. Uh, it's the
0: inputs and outputs of all the emissions. Uh, exactly. And so, how
1: much polluting you your, your product is, uh, the manufacturing of your product is. So, in, in, on your website, I've seen, for example, you have a beautiful calculator which allows your, your, you know, your potential clients. To calculate how many like liters of water or a cubic meter of air can be cleaned if they use your products depending on how many units of shoes they want to manufacture for example um, is that something you've done for the beauty of it or for your your mission or does it also like if you notice that that really helps you to find customers or to convince them on of, of, of your you know your environmental, uh, positive aspect.
0: For, for sure. I mean, the, the number one selling point for bloom is the fact that we're literally out there cleaning water with algae in enormous quantities. It takes a lot of water to grow a little bit of algae. That's probably the biggest challenge in terms of algae technology and the algae industry is that the amount of water it takes to, uh, to produce the algae it's typically, and that's where you have to to then filter that, and it costs energy. So when you're looking at a biofuel approach, all that water was seen as a negative. And so one day we started thinking about it, and we're like, you know, the fact that we have to clean this much water, we should, that's a positive thing. Like, why aren't we talking about that more? That's really the main thing that we're after, and a a good way to communicate the benefit of how we're cleaning up these environmental issues. And, And furthermore, it's about, how can we inspire and incentivize industries to do more of it at bigger scales? And so that's really where we're turning to our, our partners, our brand partners, to say, you know, if you guys adopt us, even at 5%, at 10% algae, I mean, small, relatively small levels, we're talking, you know, $0.10 cents of cost premium or $0.20 cents of cost premium uh, per, per, per pair of shoes that may cost $80 or $100. I mean, these are relatively small percentage number increases. It's not like we're doubling the cost of the shoe. And, you know, that would have an enormous impact on the planet by being able to you know get us up to the next scale. And then as we're getting the next scale, you know, there's there's more, uh, you know, we can reduce our costs. So it allows you to increase your algae content more. And it also allows us to go back to our vendors and say, hey, you know, Adidas has signed on for, you know, Two more years of of bloom and they want to do, you know, however many millions of pairs they do, which is like almost 400 million pairs, I think. (laughs) Right. So, you know, if a big customer could come up and actually commit to that level, it's going to provide an enormous boom to this industry by by having commitment behind. Yes. Algae has value. If you grow algae and intercept pollution out of the environment and preventing it from getting to the environment. Uh, there is an economic incentive for you to do that. And there's marketing opportunities. How cool is it to be working with one of the coolest sports athletic fashion brands in the world? I mean, that's where fashion's kind of fun. Trying to sell this on flower pots, we're doing the exact same thing. Nobody cared. You know, uh, making a, a sweet pair of Yeezys, like all of a sudden people are interested in the topic. And now we have the opportunity. To explain our mission and, and to hopefully inspire people to uh, you know think about sustainability, to buy products that are more sustainable, and look at uh, algae as a abundant and totally untapped natural resource that we need to be using more of.
1: And can you, like, for example, when you talk about shoes that is being sold like 80 to 100 euro, do you have an idea of the range of the like, final price of the shoes, like manufacturing price?
0: For, like not retail, but like the wholesale price. You're saying yes.
1: Uh,
0: yeah, I mean not not always, but maybe more so. Just yeah, just in general. T- typically, you know, shoes cost uh, a pair of sneakers is like twenty bucks. You know, it might sell for for eighty something. That's kind of your tip because then you know the brand makes it. There's retailers. Everybody has to double their money. That's typically the the retail equation that everybody uses.
1: And. What's preventing them from, from incorporating more of your product in it? Is it, for example, you know, we talk about EVA, um, like that's what you can compare off in terms of performances, but is it because also in shoes, I guess you need to have like, like maybe not millions, but like hundreds of different products in order to have the performance that you want to have in the shoe. Uh, and right now it's not possible to get all the different types of materials with different performances made from like eco material?
0: You know, surprisingly, we have been, so we, we've been successful in creating high performance running shoes. Uh, you know, we, we haven't hit every spec, but 90% of the specs we've been in for the brands that really, you know, push with the push their factories. We've been able to like get 30% algae content in a high performance, low density running shoe in midsoles, which is like really good uh, that's just, you know, it's like, a uh, it's, it's the highest that we've done in a foam and to be able to meet the, the spec of a, of a high performance running brand. Like I'm really excited. I mean, so, I mean, the, the flip flops, the, the, the look, the casual shoes, those are all easy. And those typically aren't, those phones aren't as expensive. And so, but the, you know, when I say that, a, a, you know, we're 10 cents more, 20 cents more, you know, if that's on probably really a $20 product, not a, hundred dollar product, because that's the retail price at market. If it's going through distribution and going through retail locations, you know, maybe, you know, there's, there's a bigger cost factor, but I mean, 10 cents will kill a project for sure. We've seen it happen over and over again. So even at the, what I would consider like us being really cost competitive, um, you know, sometimes it's, we're not. And I, and I think that it's, I mean, yeah, margins are slim, but it's all about value. And so, one of the reasons this past year or two, I've been out trying to be much more vocal about what we're doing and, and trying to be as clear as possible, because I think it is a little confusing. And so, translating a clear message of the benefits of using Bloom and building value around our Bloom brand, I believe in the long run will will be very helpful in terms of uh, being able to win over those those small price issues. Um, but yeah, the 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 price itself is uh, is the cost is definitely a, a major roadblock to getting adoption into these brands.
1: Okay, so to get back to the like, initial question, your calculator really is something that is being used in order to convince your cust- like your, your potential customers.
0: What we What we can do that no one else can do is that we can actually provide brands with quantitative information of the amount of water that was cleaned with their product through a relatively simple change in their raw materials.
1: And that it, is it an argument that has like helped you to win some deals?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, because you said that the, a lot, you know, the cost, a, the,
1: cost yeah. the cost is so important for for these brands that at the end of the day, you know, sometimes that's what I hear in the in the fashion industry. Sometimes they say all they want is like to have cheap like cheap materials. That that's it. And if we don't manage to have green materials at these prices it's very unlikely that we like we can incorporate more of it.
0: Yeah, no, for for sure. We're, we're definitely dealing with that. Uh, in within footwear, every brand now has sustainability initiatives. When we first started three years ago, uh, those, there was a lot of interest, not a lot of action. Um, you know the the brands that were able to do it were direct to consumer brands, so we had a strong focus on those early on. And also, we'd recommend going to your marketing guys. Like we we try when we go and pitch to companies, it requires the marketing. That's the you know one of the main reasons that we're trying to do footwear in the first place is that it's a gateway that allows us to communicate the, these benefits at the at the uh, you know mass adoption scale. So, have we been successful in doing that? I, not not super successful. I would say more recently, we've been more engaged with our brands uh, on social media. So, you know, every week we're, we're posting new products that are coming out from our customers and trying to build that relationship with the, with our, with our customer brand, yeah, you know, the marketing team uh, and, and trying to build our network as well. Um, and so, you know, b to c is, is tricky, but I think clear communication is critical. And so we're trying to do more and more, do more and more opportunities of sharing our story, sharing our mission, helping other companies, startups, entrepreneurs, maybe in the footwear space, uh, understand sustainability and really be a resource to the industry in terms of, uh, you know, applying LCA, uh, you know, navigating the supply chain. And if anybody's listening, feel free to reach out if you have any, you know, issues or questions or quandaries. But but yeah, so I think that's that's been one of the biggest, uh, you know, that's been very satisfying actually. Trying to share t- with other companies the the, you know, the, at least a way that we found to do it. Maybe it's not the best way. There may be other better ways, but you know, here's a way that seems to be working.
1: Yes, and if we can help each other, that's the whole uh, purpose of this, this podcast. So. It's a perfect um, way to jump to the next uh, section, which is the do's and the don'ts that you have very kindly prepared, which were this time on the topic of you know how to sell a B two B green product to a brand like Adidas, and in particular how to integrate you know into a supply chain in Asia. So if I start with the do's you sent me. The first one was like, in order to get your material approved for use by innovation materials sustainability teams, find a champion in the product and or the marketing department to drive the evaluation. Can you explain to me a bit more about that?
0: Sure. Yeah. So when you, it depends on the size of the organization. Sometimes the innovation, sustainability and product person literally is the same guy. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, and then in other cases, that's literally three different of totally different teams that may be at different parts of the world. So uh, it just depends on the scale of the company, but fundamentally you've got to have uh, a, an interest and need at the brand to be open to looking at products that are outside the status quo, outside the box solutions. Uh, you then have to be able to prove to that team that your solution is able to provide quantifiable, justifiable uh, advantages in terms of metrics or, you know, Percentages or you know certifications et cetera, to really be able to to get the the specification or, or really get the buy in from the brand to uh, to adopt you as a raw material or a, or a service or technology or whatever your whatever your product or technology is, um, and then you know and the way you do that obviously is with people you've got to be, you know, you've got to find the right person and I think that what we found has been. You know, you always want to have awareness at the highest level of people and you don't want to, you know, fart around with, you know, the, the people in the lowest totem poles that don't make any decisions. You want to find the decision maker. But with that said, yes, you need to find the decision maker. But you also have to, in our case, you've got to, we've got to convince a lot of people that aren't typically necessarily the final decision makers. You have to that,
1: convince the influencers, as we say.
0: You've got to, yeah, you have to convince all the influencers. So the influencers are going to be out there saying, oh, you know, that algae, it's only got 10 percent algae in it. Who cares? Well, that 10% of algae might have cleaned, you know, 50 liters of polluted lake water and helped uh, restore a, an environmental habitat uh, project. So, like, you can't just reduce something to a percentage and, and write it off. So, uh, so being able to have somebody on the team that can tell the, 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 the mission and the purpose and the value of your product as well as you can is absolutely uh, paramount in order to, to, to get it to the next level. And then it's just, and then after that it's kind of just relentless um, efforts of trying to you know, get that, get that specification, you know, then it's, you know, get with the designers, get with the product people, get your material specced in, make sure you can you know, get the quotes back from the factories, uh, you know, get, get them some samples, all the typical sales, you know, s- sales routine stuff. Uh, but, you know, you, you really you, you need to find the, the pain point of that organization. So we recommend like for us, since we're sustainable technology, if it's a publicly traded company, we'll go look at their website and find their uh, public records in terms of their ESG. So the ESG reports ESG? are ESG, Environmental Social Governance okay. re- Reports. So big four, you, know, publicly traded companies have to have ESG filings and they're, they're encouraged to. And so you can find a lot. About a company's sustainability initiatives by by reading one of these reports, uh, you know Adidas has them, you know, Nike has them, Wolverine has them. So you know we go look at those reports and say, okay, you know their priority is on recycling water. Well, you know what? We're going to focus our value proposition to, to Wolverine on you know our technology supports the recycling and reclamation of water and converting those nutrients back into raw materials for your supply chain, and we can quantify that. We can give you a specific number. We can show how much carbon we sequestered in the process, and we can validate it through our audited supply chain.
1: And so, so let's take, for example, the example of Wolverine, or like if you take, you look at the ESG of a new company you want to approach. After like finding out how you should tackle uh, that, that, that I mean, or you should approach that company, what are the like? How do? You, what's your strategy to to approach different like uh, departments? How do you start?
0: Uh, yeah, once you get in, it's, it's typically you know you ask ask for the meeting and try to get as many players. I like to uh, uh, encourage my host or whoever I'm talking with to invite marketing, invite your product people. Uh, if you've got a sustainability person, make sure that they they are there. Uh, if you you know if you've got s- a supply chain person, th- a lot of our questions ultimately once you get once you understand what we do. I mean, it's not that complicated. Once they get it, it's like, okay, well, then how do we do it? And that's and then at that point, you know, once they understand what it is, they understand how it works. You know, they're confident in, in us being able to to deliver it uh, in terms of you know what we say we're doing. Then how do we get it integrated into their products? And so a lot of the time, you know, most of our discussions are with the product developers, the sourcing people, and the factories that are ultimately making the product. Um, but then always that follow up back with the marketing to make sure when this product does go to, 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 to you know, go to market uh, that you're able to communicate that value in a way that hopefully your product that has your material in it actually sells.
1: So the second like, d- uh, do you send me was focus on the metrics and be patient? Can you tell me a bit more about this?
0: So these big brands really can take a long period of time, many meetings to evaluate new technologies, you know, the sales cycle of a, in the fashion industry can be, uh, well over a year, some cases multiple years, depending on the complexity of the product. Uh, you know, the, the smaller brands tend to act faster, but even the smallest, uh, or I should say, even the most nimble of brands, you know, is still going to be six months to a year. So I think that's a big one. And then the other one, just in, I mean, I mentioned this kind of earlier, but, uh, it's just so important, Particularly, working again, this is for the big comp, big brands. Uh, the level of due diligence that these companies are putting into sustainability is, is is really, really high. I mean, when you look at what where the industry is heading, currently, w- sustainability is kind of the wild west in the U.S. There, the FTC has issued what's called the Green Guide. There are now official like, regulations on what you can say about the sustainability of a product. And just based on the US, saying something is quote unquote sustainable or quote unquote eco friendly uh, by themselves, those statements are not allowed. Those are highly frowned upon. And if you were, you know, you theoretically could, could, could get in trouble with the FTC if you said that. Uh, what you should say is something in terms of eco conscious or uh, where, you know, eco conscious due to recycled materials. So in that situation, you were providing an intent of doing something more environmentally friendly, not necessarily saying that it is the ultimate sustainable product. No product is 100 percent sustainable. At least not yet. So to say something is sustainable, you know, that could be interpreted by someone who knows nothing about sustainability, that your your product is like has zero impact on the environment. And that obviously isn't true. So if you were to say sustainable or eco-friendly because it uses 30 percent recycled fiber. OK, you know, that's better. Um, so you need to quantify the, those statements. And so when you go to a big brand like that, and you do start talking about your product, your technology, you know, stay away from the ultimatums and, and, the, and the the superlatives, like it's the best or the most sustainable, or you know, those are all typically red flags. Uh, just kind of just in general, you know, sales side. Uh, but you want to focus on what are the facts? What's the metrics? How does it work? You know, what is it made of? Uh, what is the product safety? What product safety testing has been done? We've done extensive testing in terms of hypoallergenic uh, 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 testing on, on on real humans. <laughs> uh, Two hundred people wore a uh, bloom foam on their skin for for uh, over a month and had no uh, had zero negative complications of that. Uh, we've also looked at RSL testing, extensive RSL testing, where we take the most rigorous uh, restricted substance lists that are uh, you know. Uh, presented and, and, and followed by the entire industry, uh, usually set by the big guys. Um, we've been able to pass all the restricted substance lists. Uh, we also have you know safety data sheets with our product as required by OSHA. And we have technical data sheets that provide the, uh, the more specific material property specifications of the product. Uh, and then we provide SOPs. So standard operating protocols, if somebody at like, like an Adidas is going to adopt this material, how are they going to adopt it? And what does their factory need to know in order to, to actually run this material at their, at their, in, in their molds or you know in, in, their, uh,
1: in their process? So that is really important. Dear entrepreneurs, I make a one minute, 20 seconds break for an important announcement. I get a lot of positive feedback about this podcast, and I'm really happy I started it. But I know there is one thing wrong about it. For you, entrepreneurs out there like me, your time is limited. You love to learn, but you don't always have the time to listen to the long episode of this podcast. So I decided to create a best-of series with a special format. 10 audio episodes between 3 to 10 minutes, shorter than a coffee break, There are only hands-on advice shared in this podcast about, for example, how many times you should iterate to create the right product before giving up, how to find and pitch investors, how to inspire and build a thriving team, how to win clients when you have an environmental mission, how to sell your first paid pilots to big corporates, or how to prepare and to get a TED Talk. In total, this is 12 hours, 50 minutes of interviews I have condensed in 10 audio episodes of less than 10 minutes. These best-of episodes are an exclusive bonus for the members of my newsletter, so if you want to receive them for free, go to my website, gtimpact.com, gtimpact.com, or find the link in the description of this episode and sign up to receive the full series of best-of episodes to enjoy every time you have 10 minutes and you want to learn something about growing your business and having a greater positive impact on this planet. So I'll leave you here. Enjoy the rest of this episode. The third two you sent me was um, factory relationships, especially in Asia, are key. So can you iterate a bit on that?
0: Yeah, so one of the first things that we were told was that we were taking their... Uh, other vendors cheese which was the clever way of saying uh, our friends our other you know our other vendors these are our friends uh, maybe maybe family in some cases uh, it could be longtime business colleagues or you know business relationships that you're essentially coming in as a foreigner and saying don't buy from him anymore or don't buy as much from him anymore and buy it from me instead it, and by the way my stuff costs five times more than his does. <laughs> So that tends to be a bit of a problem um, and so we've a couple ways that we've been able to, to combat that is to you know go to China and build relationships with these factories and under and meet meet go, go to dinner with the owners literally um, we, our team in China meets with them in, on regular basis uh, they know the people the boots on the ground uh, they you know, they go and they do factory visits multiple times per week just depending on you know what's going on where uh, so when you're talking about factory relationships, you really, you need to have boots on the ground. And if you don't have boots on the ground, you know, it's, it's sometimes challenging to know if, if your product's really being used, if it's being used at the right ratios, um, or if the other big issue, we probably the most recent issue. Um, you know, it's the most recent, but one of the biggest issues that we have is uh, being overquoted. So when we do a project, you know, we might do an insult project. We've done, you know, hundreds of them. Well, all of a sudden we're getting a customer that's getting a quote for like, twice the normal price, you know, or, or maybe it's a, typically, typically these are new factories, right? These are, you know, they're getting a crazy quote from a new factory and, you know, because they already have a factory and they don't want to use one of, they don't want to, they don't want to, the, the brand doesn't want to pick a new factory. They've got to authorize that as a whole process to get a new factory on their system. They would prefer us to work with their factory, which is fine. We can do that. Um, and there's a little bit, there's a process for us to do that, but we can do it. Uh, But the challenge then is the first round of quotes typically are way high because they see our material as risk and they are valuing the risk factor in the price. So if it's a relatively small project and this is a new material, we've never heard of algae, we've never used algae, it kind of looks different, it smells different, it it may act a little bit different. um, That's going to require more development. It might take a little bit more time in some of the mixing steps to make sure the algae is fully dispersed. So I mean, we we know the problems. We know the the issues that we have, the shortcomings. Um, it's not they're not show but there are yeah, you know, there, there's some roadblocks. Um, so we, we are upfront about that, and we're upfront with the factory. We're upfront with the brand, and you know so, yeah, go ahead yeah. Uh,
1: and, and so the price when you're saying it's overpriced, it's because the, the the manufacturer in that case, they don't do the tests with your product first. And then evaluate the final price. They 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 kind of make an estimate of what the price will be at the end based on your product. No,
0: not necessarily. Sometimes they'll usually make it for for foams in the foam space. One of the complications that we have found is that the uh, flexible foam market uh, products are they're all different. Every like you can't just. I mean, we have some quote unquote standard grades of foam. We we actually went out and developed four foams that. Seem to be kind of run of the mill, like these would satisfy, like you know, this grade would satisfy these specs, and this grade would satisfy these specs. So you know, we we have those. We we we've actually bought larger quantities of them and brought them back to the U.S. to give to companies to do development with, um, and we know the price of those. Like those, are like that's a standard formula. But typically, with a new brand going new factory, they're basically making a new formula, and they've got to factor in the development and the MOQs and all that. So, uh, and a lot of these brands want to start small. They don't want to just Throw us across their entire supply chain. They want to do ten thousand pairs. Mm-hmm. Well, ten thousand pairs. They're only, they're only buying, you know, f- you know, four hundred kilograms from us. They're, they're 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 not even buying like RMOQ's a pallet. You know, typically plastic companies sell container loads. They deal in container loads. You know, we're tiny. We deal in like a pallet. Like one pallet will sell you a pallet. These customers are buying bags. <laughs> So you know so the bag cost. Now we got to break down pallets and sell bags, and so you know we, we we're set to do that now, but um, but yeah, you know, it's just it's not it's it's, it's a scale thing.
1: Yeah, and okay, so, yeah, so that's a scale, uh, the small scale that makes it more expensive.
0: And so a lot of our customers are getting quoted as if it's a ten thousand pair. That's all we're ever going to do. And, and they're, they're they're adding up. Oh well, we charge them this, and then there's this tariff, and the big we have we've had a huge negative impact in terms of the trade war between uh, Asia or between China and the U.S. And that has uh, imposed a 50 percent about a total all in about a 54 percent combined tariff tax and duty rate. So um, so our product that was already expensive kind of becomes astronomical. So that was that's been a big problem to, uh, that we've had to to work on and, and try to resolve. Which hasn't been completely resolved yet, but um, it's a political problem. It's a political issue. Who knows? Maybe yeah. Who knows? Now with with the new president, we'll see what happens.
1: But no idea. Um, So the fourth do you send me was find a local distributor or create your own trading company for conducting sales of your materials to dozens, if not hundreds, of factory partners in Asia.
0: So we we did the latter. (laughs) We we. we could have used a, an existing distributor, potentially. There are, they are out there. If you have a con- more conventional material, you know, and, and even I guess we could maybe do it, but the amount of hand-holding and the amount of, uh, of onboarding and just, like, the technical aspects of the product, it's not like any distributor is going to want to sell it because they're going to have to go to the factory and be like, okay, well now that you bought a bag or a pallet, you know, these distributors are looking at selling container loads, so, you know, so then it's like, well, you're not really going to be working with the polymer distributors because they're too big. So you got to find some like intermediary distributor. And so then you got to find one that's going to, you know, service China brands and Dongguan and Fujian and Shanghai and Beijing and Vietnam. So, I mean, very quickly, it's like, well, that company doesn't exist, you know, or if they do exist or maybe it's multiple companies you've got to engage with. Um, so, you know, if you find the right partner. You know, go for it. That's certainly, I would say, an easier way, but you are giving up more of the margin because now you're going to be providing wholesale uh, pricing. So your margins effectively going to be going to be pushed down maybe by half. Uh, So that's definitely a challenge. So what we decided to do, which has upfront cost and operational costs, is build out our own team. Uh, place them in the the heart of, of footwear country, which is Dongguan, China, for the world. You know, eighty something percent of the footwear in the entire planet are all made in Dongguan. Uh, about t- ten eight eight to twelve percent. Some I forget where the at today, but Vietnam's been been pulling a lot into Vietnam recently. Uh, the second biggest, um, and so by being able to uh, integrate and create relationships and set up accounts with all these factories direct. We're at least able to cut out a distributor middleman. Like our price is already high. If we were trying to sell it through a distributor, it would be it, it's it would be even worse than it already is. Now it would be distributors. You know, our our cost plus distributor cost plus tariffs plus duties plus the factory margin of ta- of the conversion factory. Then the assembly the, the profit margin of the assembly factory. All, all the logistics they are actually making the shoe, and then that's got to go back to the brand, and the brand's got to sell it to a retailer. So I mean, there's just so many fingers and hands in the pie. Any one of those that you can get out of there, uh, or, or or you know avoid as long as you can, I think is is very beneficial. Um, so you know we there's certainly growing pains in trying to operate a company around the world. Uh, you got to have good people. You got to have good oversight. You've got to have uh, you know good technical manager or business manager that knows how to like do regulatory stuff in Asia and international business.
1: So the last do you sent me was if your product is technical, be prepared to provide technical support and handholding any material or process
0: when you're trying to sell a technical product really there is a a strong need for you to be there i think to initially get it right and make sure that especially with a different like translation like we were translating instructions from china from english to china and then getting feedback in chinese back to english so the whole process of getting the process right not only uh is it just in general we had to do it in the early days to understand and provide our basic SOP, but also, you know, each pro- project is a little bit different. So, you know, when they're trying to meet a certain spec, there's typically going to be some back and forth with the factory, either in terms of the performance, uh, the loading level, or the cost, or you know, or usually all, all of the above. Yeah, so you
1: need to be ready to pro- to who held them in all the old technical sites yeah our,
0: one of our biggest challenges was odor you know algae has a big odor that was one that is like it big? a big odor it, it smells ah, when you when you heat cold. it up it's it has it smell it smells like burnt like cooking algae you're cooking you are cooking algae so there is an odor it will be an odor we have uh so instead of saying deal with it, We In our SOP, we say you need to use well-ventilated facilities. If you don't have a well-ventilated facility, this could be a problem. It's a red flag. Uh, You know, uh, dry the material, get rid of some of the moisture as much as possible. That'll help reduce the odor coming off the process. And then we actually offer them an additive that they can add at whatever level they're comfortable with. And typically, they may start with it, and then eventually they may wean themselves off. But then we have an odor neutralizer that can go in at 1% to 2% of the compound weight that actually inhibits the volatiles from leaving the compound. It essentially acts like a odor sponge, like Febreze for your plastic. And so it provides a little bit of a fragrance, and it kind of locks up the odor compounds and prevents them from, from coming out. Uh, and then at the end of the day, you know, the, the finished product we never have issues with. The, the finished product, the odor dissipates re- relatively quickly. Within a week or so, it's gone. Uh, but during the processing, you can, can get a strong odor, especially if you overheat the material. So being able to make sure that the operator who's, you know, he, he's, he's running different, he's running normal EVA all day. He might switch over to your project and run it the exact same way. And all of a sudden it smells different. And then, you know, next thing you know, um, you know, Joe, you know, Tommy is going home sick cause he's, he's sick, you know, we, we get that kind of stuff, you know? And so like typically, you know, it's, it, it works itself out, but you know, those are the kind of the problems that we, we, we deal with quite often.
1: That that kind of fragrance that you develop that you you know sometimes gives them um, what was the reason for uh, did you ever like such a bad experience at some point that you said okay now we need to find something to offer them as the a solution oh, yeah.
0: well I mean I mean it's it smelled since the beginning um, you know there's always uh, we've known it was gonna, it, that was been probably the biggest technological issue we had with the algae that, that we had to overcome was creating an odor package very early on. So maybe kind of rewind back to the beginning of the discussion. You know, we once we we were able to make these compounds 10 years ago, more or less the same thing we're selling today. I mean, that wasn't that that specifically was not that hard. Uh, Getting the odor down, getting the performance right and getting it's getting a brand to take it seriously and to understand what the benefit of it was. And then actually selling that to their factory in China. That was the hard part.
1: (laughs) Very good. Um, Now, talking about the don't. Um, the first one was be cautious to outsource your entire process of technology to contractor. Meaning, in that case, I guess your don't is like don't outsource your entire process of technology to a, a contractor.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, we had so many a lot of investors would I mean they they love this, right? They want I get it. They want the easy money. They just want to say license the technology and 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 cash the checks when they show up in your mailbox, and. As attractive as that is, I, I think that ultimately those that effort has a lot of major problems that could be totally, uh, you know, catastrophic, uh, fatal to the business. It, it, you know, and so we we we've we've done we've balanced it. I would say that we have balanced, and as the time when we felt comfortable with a contractor, we 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 did it. Um, For As as an example, with our algae supply chain, for five years, we built our own algae factory. We operated our own algae factory. We were harvesting algae. Um, Once we realized that we didn't really have to do that anymore and we couldn't really afford to do it anymore, it's kind of both, uh, we stopped doing it. Um, And we found partners, contractors to do that part of it, and we consulted and did it as good as – they could do it as good as we could do or even better. Um, We weren't as focused on that. But really, our core technology is the thermoplastics. So that's really our core business. We never really wanted to be in algae harvesting, per se. We wanted to be in where's the value being created is turning a reclaimed waste product into something that's usable and, and usable in a high-value product. And so to take that super sensitive IP and process and you know years at that point of development and just say, you know, hey, BASF, you guys run with this, they're not going to run with it. They don't know how to. They don't know how to sell that. It's a it's a huge pain in the butt. Like it's it's not interesting to them, right? At least not yet. Uh, on the other hand, if you say, "Hey, China, um, you guys make it. We'll tell you how to do it, and then you know you'll just be our toll partner." Well, then you start risking IP theft, or you start risking quality issues, and those both of those can be completely highly detrimental and fail to to the business as well. So, right now, you know we are. Contracting with the factories and basically selling them, so we only focus on our core business now. But we kind of had to dip our pinky toe in multiple levels of it, and then as soon as we could find an appropriate contractor, we did. But we've held on to our our base technology, and we only make these compounds currently in Meridian, Mississippi. We don't make them anywhere else. We we we've we almost built a plant in China. We 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 pulled back on that at the kind of the last minute, and it was a big (laughs) big big problem. Another story. Another day. Um, but, you know, but fundamentally, we want to control it because we got to we have to ensure that our customers have a positive experience. If they if it's if it if it they can't deliver, it has agglomerations like if we get any imperfections in our pellets, it can cause an imperfection in the foam and cause massive defect rates like we can't afford for that to happen because it looks really bad on us. and We're not going to get any more orders from that customer anymore or that factory anymore. And that's happened. We, we've, we've dealt with that. And so we fixed it. So like, so we, we have the tolerance and ability to like, oh, crap, that's not good. Like we got to fix that problem. We'll fix it. And then it's like, OK, well, we can keep going. So I think the level at which, you know, if we were to talk about outsourcing our core technology, that is possible. We can do that. It's been part of the business plan the whole time. We want to license that out because we want other people to be doing this. We want everybody to be doing this, quite frankly. But we got to make sure that we don't, you know, uh, uh, lose the the horse before the cart and, you know, get out there and make a, a, pre- a presence in the marketplace, you know, get Adidas on board. And then all of a sudden we, you know, switch manufacturers and we, we ship it to some China factory that doesn't really care, or know what they're doing. have a bunch of bad product go into the, the Adidas supply chain, wreck a bunch of product, like huge problem. So, um, so. Basically, be really careful if you're going to outsource your, your supply chain and make sure that you're in control of those key quality control points.
1: I guess that, uh, that also goes along with uh, what you said on the second, Don, about be present for your early projects and work through any issues with your partners In the words express fast in your reputation of success or failure for future partners.
0: The factories talk to each other. If you have a bad a bad experience with one factory, it's not even the brand. You're going to get a buzz. You know, you're going to get a, a branded in the community that hey, your product is hard to deal with. It smells. It's expensive. It's the guy. You know, the guys over there are, are assholes. Whatever it is, you know, um, you got to be careful. You really got to be careful. So we want to be. We want to. Uh, you know, be empathetic of the situation the, the, the factories are in, you know, they're basically, they have a business, they built this business, they do this thing. That's their main source of revenue for all their, you know, their family and their, and their, 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 employees. And, and so we're coming in and saying, Hey, do it, dif- do it differently. Well, what happens if it fails? Like this is their livelihood that we're talking about, you know, if their factory gets a bad reputation for this in one way, shape or form. It's risky for them to take it on. So we have to be sympathetic to that and be able to build a relationship with them, such that you know we don't let success, we don't let failure be an option for them. We 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 want to you know s- deliver to the customers' needs in a way that is uh, mutually beneficial to the factory and for the brand.
1: Um, the last do you sent me was like be careful to take on too much responsibility or liability.
0: Yeah, that was like when we when we got into the tier 2 model, we had to prove ourselves in the industry by actually taking the orders from the brands, contracting our own uh, th- their part their part with our ingredients and then we were selling it to the factory to the to the assembly factory. So we got I mean, we got deep into the supply chain and got very involved in project management and you know, we we kind of had to do it at the time. I mean, it was really it was a, it was a solution that resolved the problem we were facing. Maybe there was other ways to have done it, but that's what we did. Uh, and the problem with with it, of course, is as you do get more uh, embedded and go upstream in the supply chain. If you know, if we were to open our own sheet factory, or if we were to open our own injection shoe factory, as an example, we're not planning on doing that. But if we did, you know, now we're opening ourselves up to well, if we're selling a component to to Audi and it's wrong or it's got a defect, you know now we got to go remake that part. So like whereas our pellets, the pellets the de- there's no, we only really have a defect rate per se. I mean, there is a defect rate, but it's not like they're gonna come back to us and say, hey, we need more algae resin because you know there was a problem upstream somewhere. Um, so we're a little bit more insulated to those type of quality issues. Uh, but again, those early days of working with the factories, they're responsible for quality. So you know that's one of the big roadblocks that we're facing is that they see that this is a new material. They may have higher scrap rates. They may have higher issues, more issues. Those are all costs. So you know if we're going to do this, it's going to we're going to charge more for to do this because of these uncertainties and unknowns.
1: Yes. So. Thank you very much for all these like tips. Um, we, we already spent uh, quite a time talking about all the do's and the don'ts. And uh, actually the good part is the, we are having the final part of the, the interview with a few questions that I always ask my guests. Um, what's the first, uh, like the first question is what's the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur?
0: Wow, that's a that's a tough one. Um, you know, I, 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 the best advice that I've been given as an entrepreneur is no one thing per se, but I will say that there are there is one that maybe stands out, uh, which is design for yourself. If if you see a problem in the world, and you see a solution for it, or if you were wishing a product did X or did Y or did Z there's chances are there's other people that have had those same thoughts. And so when looking at your product or service, you know, you really got to put yourself in the customer shoe and look at ways that you would, your product or service would, would satisfy you if you were the customer. Like if we were the brand and we you know, what, what, what would we be looking for if we were trying to improve the sustainability and take that kind of customer mindset. And then also, yeah, you know, maybe the other one that's I don't want You said yes I said this give one. But the other one would be, you know, get your product out in front of a, a, a potential customer as soon as possible and really focus on your message and get that message as short as possible. It needs to be less than 3 minutes. If somebody can't totally comprehend at least the basics of your business or service in three minutes. I don't know, maybe I, maybe I failed today because we've been talking for two hours <laughs> about it, but, um, three but three hopefully- is
1: two, it's, it's pretty long, right? Like if you get someone first time talking about your product, you probably need to, yeah. to be able to do it in one minute.
0: Yeah, three, yeah, three minutes is, is long, right? So really within the first like minute or two, like they kind of have to get it. And this is like a little bit beyond the elevator pitch. I mean, not even just like you meet them in an elevator. I'm not saying like that, but a little bit more depth. Like they really like to like, somebody needs to really understand your business in three minutes to the level where like they can piece the entire thing together. If you don't have a clear message, it's the difference between not sharing ideas and sharing ideas. And when you share ideas, that leads to collaboration and business opportunities and hopefully products and hopefully sales and revenue.
1: Especially when you, when you have to convince so many people in the company, the different departments.
0: Oh yeah. So the game of telephone is huge. You've got to, your message has to, your message has to be so simple that uh, somebody who hears it can replicate it pretty much perfectly uh, without you there to a group of other people maybe weeks later. And so, like, you really have to crystallize your business in the most, like, fundamental sentences and and, and concepts possible. And so, I mean, for us, it's all about, you know, using algae to clean air and water and making consumer products more sustainable and how we do that is, you know, that's a whole other discussion, but that's really what we do. And, and we're using this, this massively untapped natural resource to do it.
1: There you go. (laughs)
0: I've been practicing Uh, a little bit, so we'll see.
1: (laughs) Which book would you recommend entrepreneurs like you to read?
0: Well, uh, the three minute rule uh, would be a good one. Yeah, you know, that's kind of what I'm referring to, which is how do you structure your entire business pitch, business concept into three minutes or less? Uh, that one is a great book. It came out relatively recently. I uh, recommend that for any entrepreneur. Uh, the other one that's quite interesting once you get past the product development phase and you actually have a product and you're talking about marketing is a book called uh, Alchemy, I believe, by Roy Sutherland. It's like the dark uh, magic behind marketing. It's kind of a uh, crazy title, but. It is awesome. It is so interesting. It really talks about how humans don't make – they rationalize decisions with logic. But in reality, the actual decision-making process is a psychological process based on emotions. And so after those emotions happen, after that psychological process occurs, the brain retroactively tries to construct a logical reason why that's why you picked – but with all these studies, they've looked at uh, from like the, the psychological science side. Uh, it turns out that you know, you're you really your your actual decisions and 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 uh, are, are emotion based. Your actual decisions are are emotion based, which isn't necessarily uh, you know everybody kind of knows that to some extent. But everybody, I think we all lie to ourselves, saying, "Oh no, I I think things through, and I you know I have an Excel chart, and I'm going to go analyze it and come out with the you no." Know you're going to make a decision based on a gut feeling or you're going to rationalize a logical decision to meet to match up with what you what you want to do subconsciously and psycho- psychologically. And so um, that book gives lots of great examples of ways that you can create value out of nothing, hence the name alchemy, but using this principle to reframe, and, uh, and, and really around branding, around marketing, around the sales process, uh, and, and really create win-win situations. The other one that's just, I mean, a, a must-read would be uh, the book. I'm on my second round of it now called Never Split the Difference. Uh-huh. And this is ne- negotiating like your life depends on it. Chris So... Chris Voss is the man, and it's an absolutely amazing book all about the art of negotiation and how really every decision with other people are, is, is essentially a negotiation in a way, and how tactical empathy and understanding the customer and a few other um, you know, key uh, elements and, and um, tactics can be, can be deployed to really create a situation where both parties win. And uh, understanding how to negotiate at the business table, at the dinner table, and even you know with your kids—it's uh, been hugely uh, impactful for, for me.
1: Yes, I mean it's uh, it's one of my favorite books as well. But I found the three-minute rule, and uh, I found Alchemy uh, too. So I will add the links to uh, to the resources as well as uh, uh, Chris Voss' book. Who's gonna like be in? A, I think and like also Lubomila and a few other guests mentioned it. So I know it's a it's a it's it's a it's, it's a good reference and it's also something really nice to read because all the uh, every almost every chapter starts with a uh, one story of his experience at the at the FBI negotiating some serious cases. So it's it's a fascinating book. Um, we are arriving at the. Last question, which is, what would be one training podcast, like blog or influencer you'd recommend to to follow?
0: One that I've been following recently is Julian Guterly of uh, Blue, Planet, Blue Planet, Green Planet and uh, Planet Positive and the work that he's doing over there uh, with helping raise awareness around the missions of over 500 uh, global planetary stewardship change makers. So essentially finding the people in the world that are pushing the boundaries for a more regenerative planet. Uh, So these are technologies, these are artists, these are philosophers, these are business CEOs uh, they may be philosoph- you know, religious people it's all, it's all over the, it's a full gamut of different guests but all focused around uh, really identifying how best to uh, turn the planet around in terms of our impact on the planet and how to create a more regenerative economy uh, through collaboration, uh, regeneration and and really focusing on on innovation as a core element of that.
1: Yes, I found it to be here: Green Planet, Blue Planet. I will share it as well. Thank you very much for for that tip. Um, now it's your like time to basically say anything you want to 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 say and to share with our listeners. If you are hiring, if you are raising some funding, if anything, where people can find you or contact you, if 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 they are actually in the fashion industry and want to, to integrate some of your, your, your green product into the, shoes. So that that's your time.
0: All right. Thank you. So yeah, we, we've been very fortunate. We just closed a, uh, a funding round recently uh, during COVID a multi-million dollar raise. So that was fantastic. Uh, we are on track for uh, you know, profitability over the next uh, year to two. And we are actively uh, looking for partners in the fashion, athletic, uh, sports, and uh, even automotive spaces. Anywhere where there is a need for sustainable materials that are foams or molded uh, components, uh, we typically work with a what are called elastomers. That's kind of our our focused market in terms of our business. So. Uh, we're always looking for, for collaborators could be on the feedstock side. Uh, if you're an algae entrepreneur and you have a new innovative production system, we'd love to meet you and talk about how that system could be scaled up to produce and clean uh, algae and, and, and clean water. Uh, whereas we, we also uh, like working with the thermoplastic companies in terms of uh, creating new products, new markets. Uh, we're actually working on a new uh, pr- uh, a line of camping gear and camping products uh, for a uh, sale and hopefully some of the, the big box stores. And, uh, so if you have a product idea or if you're at a brand that is, uh, making, you know, footwear or bags that have foam in them, or, uh, you know, gr- uh, we're, we're doing some grips for like ski poles. So like, you know, the kind of the different types of, of products, materials, then, you know, please reach out. Uh, you know, my direct uh, contact is ryan.hunt at algix.com. You can learn more about our company th- at our website bloomfoam.com or bloomtreadwell.com. It'll, both will redirect to the same place. And our uh, our social media accounts. We really are are trying to grow our, our awareness at, in the B 2 C level. So we would really appreciate uh, if you're if you're listening to follow us on Instagram at bloomfoam. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn as Ryan W. Hunt, and I post quite frequently more on the technical side uh, or business-related side, uh, some of the cool developments that we're doing, uh, some of the new projects, uh, and also share information around uh, algae uh, education, inspiration, uh, just biotechnologies that are uh, poised to uh, help improve the planet in in various different ways. So... uh, that would be a great place to reach out as well. And I love finding collaborations on on LinkedIn. Um, And then we also have videos. If you want to like visually see uh, algae blooms, like firsthand, uh, you can go to my YouTube channel, uh, The Hunt for Algae on YouTube. And uh, there's lots of videos there. Um, And then we're also crafting our own, uh, starting to, we're working towards crafting our own series, a bloom series uh, so right now you can see our first few episodes on YouTube at Bloom Foam uh, or Bloom. Sorry, that one's Bloom Treadwell, I believe. Um, on YouTube, and you can see our Bloom channel and see videos that we've and interviews that we've done uh, with myself and others on our team talking about some of the various topics that we discussed today.
1: The hunt for algae, you said.
0: The hunt for algae. Yeah, that's 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 my my escapades in the algae world, basically. <laughs>
1: Good. I'll share all these links with all listeners on the web page of the episode. And uh, Ryan, thank you so much for your time and all your tips today for the entrepreneurs out there. Um, I wish you all the best with Algix, and uh, hopefully to like reach the your break uh, your break even point as soon as possible. But especially to keep on cleaning up the water and the air thanks to your your technology and the the biomass you're using.
0: All right, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to the episode. Thank you very much. Ciao, ciao.
1: If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me. The first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. That way, you will be notified of the new episodes, but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season. Plus, for each episode, you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can